Hey, Jason, you know I love acronyms, right? And we've got the Making Chips acronym book, right? Yeah, so what do you want to add to it? Well, it's called FSBS. Are you swearing in that I one? I am not swearing in that. And it's all about Pro Shop ERP. So what does it mean? What we're using. It's for- Let me guess. The S means shop. For shops- by shops. Well, that's how that software was made. It was. Shop floor guys developed this software, and let me tell you, it is no BS. So go to ProShopERP.com for more information. Welcome to Making Chips. We believe that manufacturing is challenging, but if you are connected to a community of leaders, You can elevate your skills, solve your problems, and grow your business. I'm your host, Jim Carr, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jason Zanger. How you doing, man? I'm doing great, buddy. How are you? Good. How does it feel to be in Santa Fe Springs, California at the NTMA Training Center today? You know, it feels really nice. It's always nice to travel to get connected to another group of manufacturing leaders who are not from the Midwest, but from another area of the United States. And we're staying in beautiful Santa Monica. So I am not complaining. Neither am I. Neither am I. And you know, we always say at the beginning of the show, manufacturing is challenging. And you know, when I was preparing the show today or last night or whenever I was, I said, you know what, Jason? It's not getting any easier. Manufacturing was challenging 40 years ago. And you know what? I think it's quite frankly, to me, I think it's even more challenging nowadays. Oh, it definitely is. I mean, the pace is just moving so quickly. It's it's a little it's a little scary. It, it is really a is. Scary. I mean, the pace of every every business out there. I mean, I'm a tooling distributor, not a manufacturer, so I could see it from the outside. But it's for me, it's changing. For you, it's changing. For I mean, it's like robots, data, blah blah blah. It's you know a lot of things to take into consideration. Yeah, and I think our roundtable discussion today, talking about the skills gap and where we're at, and how does it differ from the Midwest to the West Coast? I'm really interested to hear our guests' perception on that and what it's like out here. So why are we here, Jim? Before we go there, I want a big shout out to Katie at the NTMALA. We were talking to her years ago about coming out here to Santa Fe. Why don't you define NTMA and LA? LA LA is Los Angeles. It is. What do you know? You're getting smarter every day. (laughs) But the NTMA is the National Tooling and Machining Association. And from what I understand about, this is a countrywide association. And we're at the Los Angeles chapter. We are. We are at the Los Angeles chapter. They're independently operated. They have guidelines from the NTMA. I know during my TMA years when when I was serving on their executive board, we engaged with Dave Tilston, who was the acting president of the NTMA. So it's like a local franchise. It is like a local franchise, but they are independently run. Yes, it's great. I thank Katie so much for inviting us in and her hospitality today. It's been so good so far. Yeah, I mean, as soon as we walked in the doors, we saw a group of 10 aspiring machinists getting trained. So it was good to see the gray-haired gentleman was... You know, training some twenty-year-olds on how to run a machine, and it was, you know, it kind of brought tears to my eyes to see that. Were you crying? Get, no, I, I didn't but think I, so. I, you know, yeah. I thought about it, yeah. but but I didn't I'm the one that cries, right? Yeah, yeah. I yeah. briefly thought, and I was like, no, I'm not going to cry. Yeah. And so <laughs> I saw the gray-haired guy teaching these young guys like to be machinists, and I was like, this is awesome. You know yeah. what I mean? And they were wide-eyed and looking at him, and he was showing them all the. He was talking about some grooving tools, and I was like, oh yeah, there we go. And you know what? That brought me back to back when I was 19 and doing my machinist apprenticeship program a long time ago. But you know what the big difference was? 
We didn't have a training center. There was no CNC machines when you were that young? certainly no CNC machines, but there, it was all theory. So back in the time that I went was theory-based machinist apprenticeship program that I went through. I was two to three nights a week. I don't remember how many nights a week. But you were using tool bits. Well, we were using, <laughs> I was using my Texas instrument calculator. I know that. And I thought I was really good at it by figuring sine, cosine, and tangent. But no, at the end of the day, it brought me back to Jason. And I thought that all that young talent that's so impressionable. And it made me feel good that there is actually a demographic of people that really want to enter into this industry. And I look forward to this conversation we're going to have with this great group of manufacturing leaders and hear their perception of what's happening. Yeah. So why don't we, we want to move quickly into this episode, but before we do, I think it's really important for the manufacturing leaders out there to know that it's making chips is not just a podcast. We actually have a it's newsletter. Not? No, it's not. Okay. Making chips has a newsletter called the boring bar and you can very easily get connected with it. Can I get a uh, vodka martini there? Eventually you can. Okay. Yes. We'll be there. And we'll announce that first on the show when the actual bar, Are we gonna have a boring party? bar, we're going to have a party okay. when, the, when the actual boring bar opens. But for now, it's a newsletter, which will reference other information that Making Chips publishes besides the podcast. And in order to get access to that, all you have to do is text CHIPS, C-H-I-P-S, to 38470. So you get out your phone type 38470 where you're sending it to and enter chips in the message. That's and you how you text, yeah, that's, and you're that, done. The last time I remember, that's how you send a text message. Yep, yeah, 38470 to chips, C-H-I-P-S, and do it today if you haven't done it. Yeah. Because you don't want to miss any good, boring bar material, yeah, right? There's some great articles there. And we just got a logo, too, for the boring bar. Yeah. It was pretty cool. So what's happening? What's the pulse of your business, Jason? You know, we're trying to take this through an iteration. We were talking on the plane out here yesterday, and we said, we're going to change this up a little bit today. We're not going to talk about what's keeping us awake at night because it seems like the things that are we're talking about that are keeping us awake at night are becoming redundant. So let's just well, talk it wasn't about just what's that. the pulse. I mean, if I'm going to talk every single week about something that's keeping me up at night, I'm going to be pretty haggard and tired all the time. No because, kidding. I mean, yes, I have issues, but if I'm not managing my issues well, I'm not going to have 52 things that are keeping me up at night. I need to get some sleep. Right. So really? I, yes. I would say what's the pulse on my business is that you're starting to make some good positive changes in the company. I hate to say this, but like, if I'm going to be honest, careful what you say. <laughs> you're being recorded. <laughs> if you know? I'm going I know. If I'm going to be honest, your leadership in your business has to be balanced with your personal leadership at home. And I've just celebrated my youngest one year birthday not too long ago, and I'm reeling out of that stage of not going to have a baby in the house anymore. And so that's going to make it so that I can get my eyes back on the ball a little bit better. Not that I've been off the ball, but I've I haven't been on the ball like I'd like to, so that's a good thing. Does that mean you're going to work more? Yeah. Okay, thank you. Maybe a little bit. Nick and I and Chris all appreciate that. I'm not going to work for making chips more. I'm going to work for Zengers more. Oh, okay. <laughs> Is that where that's going? Okay. There you go. What about you? What's your pulse? Well, things are really good. Like I said, we had a good four-hour conversation, well, three-hour conversation on the plane, and you had said that things are pulling back a little bit from based on what you're seeing, but not at Car Machine and Tool. We are really doing well, and we're having growing pains, and that's the pulse of the business, right? right now, what's the next piece of capital equipment? What's the next type of talent that we hire into the company? And just, again, like you had mentioned, managing and leading, putting layers of management within the company is really an important thing. So Yeah, those are good problems. It's, it's a good pulse. Yeah, I hope it stays on track. But 
I have some manufacturing news. It's kind of yep, relevant to what we're going to talk about today with these guests of ours. And this was an article that was published by Deloitte and the National Institute on Manufacturing. And it goes back to talk about the U.S. economy is humming along in a period of remarkable expansion marked by notable contributions from the manufacturing industry. The sector has been consistently contributing to over 10% of the national gross domestic product GDP and represented more than 8% of all U.S. employed population in 2017. Did you know that? I thought Um, that was a pretty powerful statement. No, I think that's good. That means that we're, our contribution is bigger than the number of people, we're, which we're is good. We're pretty darn yeah. relevant, aren't yeah. we? Yeah. It goes on to say that the contributions of the manufacturing sector seem to become more apparent when we consider its multiplier, and we've talked about this, mm-hmm. multiplier effect on the economy and jobs. Every dollar in output from the manufacturing industry generates another $1.89 of additional value of every direct job and creates 2.5 additional jobs in the U.S. economy. Yeah, so I think that's a good statistic. The latest in that statistic is good to have because unlike, say, like a lawyer or an accountant or somebody like that, we contribute to the economy in a very substantial way, more more so than... We do. I think, I think the only industry that can compete with the manufacturing industry as far as its contribution is possibly the construction industry. Those I think you're right. Two. I think you're right. Because those are both creator industries. But at the end of the day, you know, I know, and probably 98.7% of the metalworking nation that's listening to this show right now knows how impactful our industry is on the GDP. And we have a problem ahead of us. And the problem is they've got all these baby boomers that are in our trade. They are slowly starting to retire and we're not backfilling with new talent. There's some millennials that are coming into the trade. I don't know what happened to the generation Ys. What, do, what, do, my, what is my, your what is your demographic? I'm generation X. Your X, who are, yeah. All, There's like nobody. It went from me, the baby boomers, to right. the millennials. Exactly. It, what was up with your generation? Um, I think it was mostly because my generation was parented by people that were very in tune with manufacturing at a time when it wasn't a glamorous job. It was probably very dirty. It probably didn't get paid as much as it could have. And I think a lot of those parents told their kids, don't go into manufacturing. Right. So my generation, for the most part, didn't. I, look, for, I look forward to hearing what our guests Yeah. So why don't we hear. move on to that? Why don't we let's, introduce let's do the that. three manufacturing leaders that we have today? Our first guest is Hernan Ricarti, who is the owner of Ricarti Precision in Santa Ana, California. Welcome, Hernan. Our second guest is Brian Grigson, who is the general manager of Axis Corporation in Paris, California. Welcome, Brian. Our third and final guest is Brian Pendarvis, owner of Pendarvis Manufacturing in Anaheim, California. Welcome, gentlemen, and we are very happy to Thank have you. you today. Thank, Thank you. you. Good to be here. Yeah, thanks. It's a pleasure to meet you and share your perspective on this industry that we're so passionate about. But in an effort to to save a little bit of time here, and Jason and I certainly don't know anything about or not much about you and your respective businesses, I thought we'd just go through and let you all introduce yourself and a little bit about your company to the Metalworking Nation. So Hernan, why don't you go ahead Thanks, guys. My name is Hernan Ricarte, president of Ricarte Precision in nearby Orange County, California. We're a turnkey contract manufacturer specializing in the precision machining of tight tolerance plastic and metal 
parts for the medical aerospace, auto, and, and energy industries. We have uh, 26 CNC machines, which include various types of lathes, such as screw machines, live tooling, twin turret lathes, wire EDM machines, and multi-axis mills. And December of this year, we're going to be adding a full five-axis 32-pallet machining center, which we feel will help us drive consistency in the quality of the parts that we fabricate and will streamline the fabrication of these parts, especially on repeat parts. I'm, I'm relatively new to this industry. I joined family business three years ago. Prior to that, I spent nearly 20 years um, in Asia Pacific in the medical device industry. I lived in Japan for approximately 10 years on and off. But in 2010, I moved the family back to California. And at that time, my sister and I were looking and helping my father see if there are any opportunities to sell the business because he was you know, getting older and sort of getting tired of what he was doing. We didn't find any suitable suitors per se, especially considering the stability and the growth potential that we saw in the company. So honestly, about a year or two later, after reflecting a little bit more on my work-life balance, that's when I decided to give it a shot. So I decided to see if I can help the company go to that next stage. Fantastic. That's great. I just thought of a million questions that I want I know, to ask I know. You, but, I'm writing them gonna, down. We're I'm taking notes. We're going to stick to the show. Brian. Hi, my name is Brian Grixon. I'm the general manager at Access Corporation. We're a precision CNC machining facility, primarily focused in the oil and gas industry, automotive, aerospace. We are actually out there trying to change the perception of what the manufacturing facility looks Touché. like. You could go on our website. You'll see exactly what I'm talking about. One of the things that people always ask me is, does your shop really look like that? And my answer is yes. You know, that we was actually one of my, make chips at our facility, but yeah. it still looks as clean as it does. Yeah, that was one of my first reactions. Beautiful website and beautiful clean floors. Thank you. I started in the industry in 1996 with the company. I was a welder by trade in high school. So when really? I got to my first job with Access Corporation, which actually was named True Group Machine, but I went in there expecting to start welding. And of course, I was handed a mop and a bucket and said, like, hey, go clean <laughs> floors for the next two years. So I've done everything within the realm of manufacturing. I was sweeping floors, scrubbing toilets, driving parts, working in shipping, did receive an inspection, ran a saw, ran a CNC, set up CNCs, floor inspection. You know, I've done it all. I've worked in purchasing. In that time, I went through my education, graduated Cal State San Bernardino, operations management, went on to learn contract law, ULV. <clears throat> I've been an ISO management rep. I've got a host of certificates. I'm a Six Sigma black belt. I've done everything. And one of the things that I love the most is giving back to the manufacturing community. And that's what I'm here to do. That's awesome. awesome. That's awesome. Thank you, Brian. Thanks, Brian. And Brian 2.0. <laughs> so let's see our story. My father is a welder by trade. He learned how to weld, didn't graduate high school, started in shops in the 60s. In the 70s, he migrated aerospace, instrumental and Concord stuff back in the 70s at a place called Aztec in Irvine, I believe. Ran a shop in the late 70s, started our company in 1982. Fast forward 30 years, I bought the company from my dad. So where I got in this industry, high school, summer, my senior, junior year, worked at a shop my dad ran, ran a Blanchard grinder. Still remember the smells back in the day. You can't forget Blanchard grind smell, right? So I started work for my dad. I got out of the Army a couple of years in the Army in the early 80s, got out of the, there. I started working with my dad in 85. Fast forward, helped my dad build a business. When I started, there was three of us. Today, there's 
30 of us. I work with my dad, kind of helped run the shop for the last 15, 20 years. Matter of fact, today, my parents' 61st anniversary today. Oh, oh that's fantastic. 61 years. So, and, what, and what kind of manufacturing So does we the do machining do? and welding and metal fabrication. We're a little unique in this industry. I learned how to be a machinist. My dad was a welder. So I learned to just, we make stuff, local amusement parks. I got about 26, eight people or you fried machining and welding and metal and fabrication. We did a lot of manual back in the day. I used to run a manual machine, lays and mills, did a lot of like, large turning myself, threading, single point threading back in the day. We got into the CNC world about 12 years ago. Today we have five CNC mills and three CNC lays. Yeah, a lot of fabrication, metal, good group of people right now. When we originally talked about coming out to California, the first word that popped into my head was aerospace. California, from a manufacturing perspective, is primarily known for the aerospace industry. Is that a big chunk of what you see out here in California, A? And is that driving a lot of the manufacturing? And what is the level of busyness out here on the West Coast? I know for our, our business, aerospace was actually our number two customer until recently. Aerospace has just been blowing up in this region. I can't make parts fast enough, it seems like, for a few of our customers, and they've quickly moved into our number one chunk of business. I mean, so, it's even moved out to the Midwest, too. I mean, Midwest, the manufacturers that that I deal with, and I know Jim is is seeing this as well, aerospace is becoming a big part of, of our business out here as well. For us, medical has been a big part of our business. Okay, um, coming from your background? Exactly, yeah. And coming from my background, I've sort of focused on that. However, aerospace without question. And the companies that are around us that are focused on aerospace, it has grown significantly. So I would say that our business has gone maybe from 5 to 15% aerospace, which has really helped us in the sense that we Diversify grown. a little bit, yeah. Yeah, diversify and, and help us with the growth, yes. Gentlemen, before we continue this conversation, Brian Grigson, I know the other two gentlemen are family businesses. Did I hear that you started the company or was it a family-owned business? I did not start the company. And okay. I do not own the company. Okay. I've I worked was... for the company since I was a senior in high school. Okay, great. The great. owner of the company is Brandy Tidball. Amazing man to work for. Obviously, he's, if he's given working... me all the advantages to, to be where I'm at today. Okay, so just, just so I've got a good picture in my head about the, the dynamics here with these three companies, I wanted to do that before we go ahead. But before we start talking about this, this huge skills gap that is really, I think it's all manufacturers' number one pain point right now, I want to talk a little bit about the association that brought us here today. Can you just give us a little synopsis of how the NTMAL a helps you in your businesses. Yeah, why are you a part of it? Besides just right. Katie, what's the other reasons why you're part yeah. of this organization? Because I want to see if the same thing holds true for what we know as a manufacturing association in Chicago. For me, being new to the industry, it's been huge. It's been a huge help in broadening my network, the perspective and knowledge base. They've helped me connect with business owners in, in my ability to share experiences, different People environments, that feel your perspectives. Pain. Yeah, and, and to learn from their pain. Also, yeah, so you don't have that pain before. Well, it, it, it doesn't hit as hard as, as hard, right? Also, service providers, I mean, they're well connected, whether it's insurance, whether it's legal, HR, they've got a great network of service providers that we can lean on and they're trusted. And then also there's the educational aspect of it. So being able to come here, meet with students who are interested in careers in, in machining. And also for our own employees, giving us the opportunity to provide a little extra training for our employees. Brian? I second everything he just said, but I think I'm going to go a little bit more into the, the other realm, which is friendships. 
it's easy to say networking. Networking is, you know, the common phrase. But when we talk friendships, I've I sat on the board for a number of years and the relationships that I've I made, you know, sometimes it could almost sound like a bad joke. An engineer, a banker, and a lawyer walk into a restaurant to have lunch and I'm like, Well, yeah, I do that. And Without the NTMA, I would have never been in relationships with some of these guys that are in the different fields. We've got people in the lawyers, bankers, metal people, manufacturing people, fabrication people. I've gained so many relationships with so many people in, in a variety of fields that I would have never obtained had it not been for being a part of this association. Yeah, all of that exactly. Same with me. For myself, the last four or five years, as I've taken over the ownership of the company from my father, I have uh, my three or four guys I talk to a couple of times a year. I call it the talk me off the cliff friends. We all need those. Yeah, I know yes. what you mean. You know, or a random personnel issue. I know who to call. You know, what happened to this guy? What are you about this guy? And I have great relationships with a handful of guys that have been around a long time. And the biggest one is my insurance guy. Through the years, through the association, my buddy Michael, his company, I don't even know how he does it. He kicks everybody's butt in a worker's comp. And we've been with him a long time and great rates. We're good. He, he keeps his people honest and keeps me honest. And when I have a hiccup in the world, he keeps me straight. So yes, relationships, long time. Yeah, and I, I call that my personal board of directors. Those people go. that I met through the association. Those, those are your core group of people that you can you can text, you can call, you can lean on and say, what the heck am I going to do about this? And we help each other. We've got each other's backs all the time. And you have to have that. I mean, so you say you talk to these talk me off the cliff guys like three times a year. So I feel like I have to have those conversations once a week with Nick Goldner. Should I do something about that since he's calling me every week to talk him off the cliff? Well, I have I have different talk me off the cliff people. So I got my business people and for, you know, we all have those people we call about. What the heck's going on, brother? And that's so we all have those people in our in our world, yes. And I think it's different because sometimes, you know, you you might get hundreds of calls a day, but when you get a call from someone that you know in this in the association that it's a GM to a GM or owner to owner or president to president, you're going to take that call. You're going to take that call and talk to them for five or 10 minutes and give them, give them your input on whatever their questions might be. Otherwise, yeah. you're just not going to pick up or you're not going to respond, right? And that, <laughs> right. to me, I mean, that to me is priceless. Like You can't I mean, put a price tag on that. Yeah, It's yeah. true. That's one of the reasons why we started making chips is that we felt that there needed to be this almost virtual community of manufacturing leaders to come together and say, hey, I want to listen to somebody anonymously. Maybe don't want to let out that I have this pain, but somebody else is going to talk about the same pain that I have. Right. And that way, that'll this forum will help to bring people together. And Ernan, you, you mentioned that very early on, that as somebody new in the manufacturing industry, you were searching for that, right? Absolutely. Even just prior to joining. And I was still traveling to Tokyo every two weeks. Mm-hmm. And I would listen to you guys. Okay. This is back in early 2016. Really? And I thought, my gosh, I mean, these guys have it. They're talking about culture. They're talking about marketing. They're talking about branding. They're talking about lean and things like that. And to be honest with you, it was an inspiration for me to just see if I could try to implement some of those things in our family business. Great. That's great. And you need the virtual and you need the real world. Let's go grab a glass of wine and have dinner. You need both of those things. Let's talk about the, the, the biggest pain point in this industry right now. And that's really what the foundation about this whole roundtable is about, is about the skills gap. It's not getting any better. It seems like it's getting way worse. We've been talking and talking and talking. And I, I really want to hear what these three manufacturing leaders feel about it. And I want to hear what the pulse is here on the West Coast, too, as well. So let's start with Brian Pendarvis. Tell me... 
What is the pulse of the skills gap here in Southern California? The pulse is, yes, there is a skills gap. I have, I run manual machines, so those are typically older fellas. They're yeah, older yeah. guys, and they're great at what they do. In the CNC world, it's it's a technology issue that that you either learn technology as, so I'm 56, so you, as I've been doing computer stuff for 25 years, so I understand the processes involved in computers and stuff like that. And I have people on my staff that are my age that just missed 20 years of computer stuff. I mean, they just don't get it? No, a little slow. A little oh, slow, oh, to, yeah, the, I, slow I, to the game a little bit. Sure. So, But they're my best people as well. So it's a fine line between younger and older age-wise, but also skill level. And my youngest guy, I hired him out of NTMA. I don't know, Brian's with me two and a half years. Little green. Actually, he's really green. And we brought him in and had some skills. And we actually, he came back here to the NTMA training for a, an inspection class. So he brings that to us and, and we're coaching him the way we want it, that we want to run a shop. So yes, there's a skills gap. What I've had to do actually last five, six years is intentionally go away at some level from the sophisticated machine shop work. I'm going to leave it to the Grigsons, these guys. I had an NC programmer years ago. An NC programmer. CNC programmer. Oh, CNC. Just okay. Took adva- I felt he took advantage of me, and I'm not going there. My my machines all programmed on machines, so we do fairly simple stuff. Okay. So you're intentionally going after that manual, more manual market. Um, well, no, intentionally not sophisticated guys. So okay. Because I don't have enough work to support him. These fellows to my left, big shops, 30, 40 machines. They can have a program or two in the office. I'm not that guy. I'm not an aerospace. So you know your niche. I know my niche. My niche is actually weld fabrication and, and building stuff. I combine the machine shop work, and I build stuff in my fabrication world, and we do a booming business that way. So, yes, there is a skills issue. I run ads. It's evolved in the last 30 years how you get ads, how you where you find people. Right. And I've just recently hired a new manual machinist. It was surprising. I How old would that manual machinist be? Probably 55. 58. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, he's I, not a spring chicken. Oh, no, you aren't going to find 25-year-old men. So what, so what are you going to do in 10 years? <laughs> I'm 56. I'll be gone and retired by then, brother. That's my plan. So, right? 50, come on, 10 years? <laughs> Jason on. doesn't know Just, math very right, well. So yeah. that's kind of where I'm headed towards someday, you know? So I don't know what's going to happen. All I know is I got to work with what I've been given. That's a good attitude. Actually, quite frankly, that's a good attitude. I work with the people I've given. That's what I do. And we make the best of it. And business is great. I just ran an ad for a manual machinist. I had the most people apply in several years. So something- Why? Um, that, 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 now that means, mm. that, that's an insight right there. It's an insight. Why? So something, maybe they're laid off at another company. Okay. Or someone someone moved out of the area. I've followed this through the years. Trends, I might run an ad and I'll get four guys that left the same company in the last six months. It comes in waves. It's the weirdest thing. It, I've seen it. I've do all the different places to find ads. I don't use temp services or to hire a lot. I don't do that. I just run ads and off a hunch and interview the right guys, have them talk to my guys, and seven times out of 10, it's a good hire. And Brian Grixon, tell us what's the pulse at your shop as far as the skills gap and talent and trying to find those people to set up, operate, and program your CNC machinery. Um, the gray wave is definitely happening. You're seeing it. You're seeing it all over the manufacturing industry. We're seeing it in our shop as well. We take two different approaches, I, I would say, to trying to eliminate some of that skills gaps. We're trying to get them young. We're heavily involved in the high schools, the community colleges. We've even gone as far as go to the middle schools. I'm on advisory boards for different high schools in the area. We try to get them to come out. One of our other big things is manufacturing day. 
we open up our doors and have middle schools, high schools come come into our facility. One of the number one things I hear is, you know, kids all say to us all the time, you know, we have driven by this place a thousand times and I had no clue what you guys did in here. And if I could get them to come in, see what we're doing and put their hands on it, they get interested. So do you think that those, for lack of a better word, those little things that you do, so having that clean, organized shop, being on those advisory committees, visiting the middle schools and doing all those things, do you think that that brings in people to your company as opposed to somebody else that's a competitor in hiring? I have interns come in and just went back to school last week. And, they see you and, as the and place what, to work instead of somebody else. Yeah, exactly. And the second step of that is perception. Changing the perception of the manufacturing industry. To your point, the manufacturing industry, 10, 15 years ago, you would expect to go into a shop and see oil on the floor, dirty floors, stuff on the walls. A, a the, mist the, grinding the, shop. Yeah. You know, Blanche you know, you grinders, could, you, I totally, I, I know exactly what that is. You want to burn your clothes by the end of the week. Yeah, my wife still says my clothes stink <laughs> at the yeah. end of the week. So but, for us, it's the same way as attacking customers as it is attacking new talent. Everyone has 401k. Everyone has health and dental and benefits and this and that. Okay, so what what else can we do? What to is the differentiator? Kids? Is it culture? Culture, perception of, you know, they want to go into a clean environment. They want to they want security. They want to know that the company has room to grow. They want all of those other things besides what used to make companies successful. I think we have to change that to make our next generation successful. Is it money? I have this later on in the list, but I I want to know is it being driven by that dollars per hour number. I know you're a smart man, and if you read the same report I did, I think it, don't quote me exactly on it, but it was, I think it's 66% of that issue has little to moderate impact in the person's decision. I agree. Where they're employed. I agree. I've read that. I understand that. So if it's not money, what else can you offer? Well, and so I, what? what is that list of items that you offer that's different? Go to our facility. Okay. And then go to our, go to our competitor's facility. You'll see the difference. Beautiful. Hernan, can you just elaborate a little bit about what those differentiators are and tell us a little bit about your problems at, at trying to hire skilled or semi-skilled talent? Yeah. <laughs> sure. For us, I think like many of my colleagues here and, and, and around in the community, I mean, we've been growing a lot. Over the past three years, we've experienced growth of about 30% year over year. Our, it's uh, hard to manage. It's very hard to manage. I'm hoping for more, a little bit more slow growth and planned growth. Hiring people is crucial, but it's something you have to be very, very careful about. Like anything, if you knee jerk and just try to get people in there to jump on the machines and so plug a get, hole, yeah. it'll just You're be gonna a create bigger problems mistake. In the future. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. So for us, I totally agree with what Greg is saying. Unfortunately, I have not had the time to go out and build those bridges with the community and things like that. What we have been focusing a little bit more on is our own employees. And just like Brian was mentioning, reaching out to the community and things like that is a must. But for us, what we've been focusing on is our own employees. So just like we are obsessed over taking care of our customers, we obsess over taking care of and seeing that our key employees have what they need in order to grow. So and retention is, is really is, what you're is, focusing is you, on. Retention, training, getting them involved. And the culture, right? So getting them yes. involved on anything new that we're doing, anything from processes to branding of values and making sure that they're a part of um, new technology investments and things like that. You know, you're spending a lot of time developing your employees. Do you ever use your employees in order to find new talent? Absolutely. How have you made that work? So it's... Because it's a different approach than, than Brian's right. taken. And I think that there's credibility in, in both of them. Right. You, you cannot rush it. 
you cannot rush and you ha- and that's why I think you have to have your employees very much involved in the development of your growth and keep them involved. So it took me about a little over a year after I was in the business until I built those relationships with our key employees to make them feel comfortable and really think about how we can recruit together. Some of these relationships and some of the key uh, employees that we have, and I don't know if I should say this, but started off as part-time employees. Oh, you think that's a tactic? Absolutely. Okay. For us, it has been. I mean, we run- Why? Can you elaborate? Because that's kind of new. You, I've you never get, heard- You get to know each other. And you're, yeah. so you're testing the waters a little yeah, bit? Absolutely. Is that what you mean? Okay. Absolutely. That's even for shop floor jobs. Yes. Yeah. So what does part-time look like in your shop? Is that touchy because you're employing them maybe in the second shift after they've already worked first shift somewhere else? Exactly. Yeah. Oh, really? I mean, it's a strategy. You know what I mean? It and, is a you know, I think it's a tactic that needs to be explored, and it it's kind of makes sense. It helps both of us. It helps the employee understand the culture if they fit in. It helps us determine if they're a right fit, not only from a technical aspect, but also from a cultural aspect. So we all agree that the boomers are on their way out. They're retiring. The backfill is is difficult. Sounds like you're just like putting them out to pasture and shooting them or well, something. Well, no, Jim. I mean they're gone. Everyone has an expiration date, <laughs> right? And I certainly don't want to work forever. I want to enjoy the golden years a little bit as well. And so everyone has to have that. But let's talk about training. So we all agree training is really imperative in our industry in 2019, what percent of your workforce is training right now? They're not like journeyman machinists. Anywhere from 5 to 75% on their way to that journeyman machinist status. So are you talking about that person that just raised their hand and said, I want to become a machinist from and I don't know two, anything? Yeah, right. so just that guy that maybe just got out of high school that knew nothing. Maybe he had, was in the welding class in high school, or he had a little bit of CAD knowledge, and he brought that into one of their companies. To the guy that's been through the NTMA training center, he's he's knowledgeable with the fundamental skills of machining. He's got a little bit of CNC experience. He's almost there, but not quite. What percentage of your overall workforce is in that training? In my machine shop, there I have, I have all skilled guys. I have the one young fellow I mentioned a minute ago for, that he's two or three years out of the NTMA. So he's Brian. He's 23, 24 years old. In my machine shop, the rest of them are all older and been at it a long time. They bring something to the table for years. So, But in my Weldon Fab, I've got three or four guys. i got a young kid a year out of high school, want to be a welder. And I I knew his folks, good kid, and he's one of my best guys in the back. Other than that, a couple of younger fellows, you know, cut and grind and finish. But everybody else is, is, I look at a resume and I'm like, you're going to be a good fit or we're going to teach you how to do this. So a very small percentage of mine are are non-trained. Are non-trained. Okay. Do your veteran talent teach that new guy? How receptive are they to teach that that the new I, talent? I task them with that. Oh, you do task oh, yeah. them. With what that. what okay. is that? What does that look like? It's you know like. Are you my, talking about like a very deliberate mentorship program? Kind of not deliberate, All but right. more of okay. You know, my young guy Brian, the machine shop guy. He good kid, fairly good work ethic, but we're going to teach him certain things, and it's deliberate. Okay, and got to check your check your ego at the door. Someone's going to tell you how you do this, and you're going to learn how to do it the way we wanted to do it. 
And um, so, yeah, it has to be deliberate. It has to be you deliberate. You can't just, you know, let some, you know, willy-nilly out there run a machine. No, no. God, no. Yeah. And it's the same in the weld stuff. You know, I, I've got, like I mentioned, the young weld kid. We, he's doing some stud welding today. He'd never done it. We got a stud welder out stud welding. We taught him how to do it. And someone's checking him every day and managing. Oh, you have to. You have to have some somebody kind of keep an eye on him. It's like, okay, you're responsible for this guy. They're shadowing. Make a, sure, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to look at it. Yeah. And so what what I do in my shop is those new green CNC machinists, I always put them on my old 20-year-old CNCs, and I'm like, just play around there because if they if they jam that two-inch shell mill right into the table or in the side of the vise, I'm not going to cry. So, yeah, that's a tactic that I use in my shop for, for the new people. What about you, Brian? I think our my, my number is much higher. We're probably about 60%. And I think we go kind of towards... To your point, we have someone who could just operate, just stand there and push that button, change out parts. And then the next step would be setting up, doing some offset changes. And then the next step beyond that would be programmers, where I would think I probably have about 30% of my my senior programmers that could have four or five guys shadow underneath them at any given time. And those guys, I mean, their tribal knowledge is priceless. And the fact that they could bring these guys in and show them what what they're doing. And most of the time I find that those guys, those gentlemen are more than happy to train these younger generations, even excited a lot of the times. Do you have a formalized program for for how you manage that that shadowing amongst those three different levels? Not no. No. You no. just you just encourage them to make that's, those connections. That's and what we do. If they're gonna, you know, okay. I would say that's the norm rather than the exception. Do you think that sometimes that falls through the cracks when it could. when you get busy? And do you think that that's something that you can you know help to solve in order to be more deliberate with your training of the I mean, creating the first level? For yeah, that. yeah, yeah. Like assigning level one guy with a level three guy. I think you could, but I, I think at any given time, I mean, we're all in the manufacturing industry. Yeah. We know there's times when it's just something's going crazy, and yep. guess what? It can't happen that day. There might be an expedite. There's always there, a fire to put out. There, right? There's all. I always said in our management meetings, you know, I'm tired of being a firefighter. I want to be a smoke detector. Exactly. So how do you make that transition? Because I very mean, people, slowly and well, very painfully. Because you know, I would say if you're going to attract the right people, people don't want to work for a company that's always in a fire drill. At least the normal person. There's some people that like to work in fire drills all all day long, but like the normal person wants to be in an environment where they're not always fighting fire. So how do you make that transition? Technology. Okay, yeah, you, no, I you agree know, with when you. When we Brian. got our automated scheduler up and running a few years ago, it saved lives. Okay. We see things that are coming ahead of us three, four weeks at a time. Okay. And are you are you using that technology to attract some of those younger machinists? That's, I feel like you have to. I mean, totally. I was going to say earlier, I can control my entire facility from my phone. Okay. I can open the doors. I can turn off the lights. We're working on proximity sensors for the guys so they don't have to actually clock in and out anymore. And I had a gentleman... Oh, that's cool. Oh, wow. Really? Go. Yes. Really? So as soon as they drive in the gate, basically it clocks them in. Nice. And as soon as they leave the facility, it clocks them out. Awesome. I mean, little things like that. I had a gentleman I hired a few weeks ago and he came in and goes, wow, we used to have a punch clock or punch card. Oh no. And I what, My, like, what? Clunk, clunk. You might as well fax me something at the same time <laughs> because what are you guys talking about? And then that kind of goes to, you know, and, and we knew about this pro- in the manufacturing community, all of us, we knew about this problem in 2012. We knew about it in 2013. We knew about it in 2014, getting worse. And here we are, 2019, and we're talking about the same problem. And as a community, we didn't do anything. Or maybe we did do things, but we de- certainly didn't take the right steps to attract this new generation. of, I would assume that when you're sitting down with that prospective employee and you tell them all these different things like you're punching in and out as you 
move in and out of the facility. I can manage this facility from my phone. I'm using data in order to best schedule jobs and be more efficient. I assume that that's, that attracts that person to want to go to work for you and you're getting the best of the best because of those things that you do. So you're not only investing in some of those processes in the company, but you're also making an investment in people that want to work for you. I, I say the same thing and that I said earlier. I treat talent or employees a lot like I treat my customers. If I can get a customer to come into our facility, they're sold. Right. If I can get an employee to come into our facility that had interviewed at another shop or another shop, and I might not even be offering the same amount of money, but they could see what we have to offer, nine times out of 10, I'm going to get them hired. What kind of an investment is that in time and money and effort to get your company to that point? I'm not sure if it's so much of a money issue. Is it time... I look at it as being different. I always, when I do something, I always say, and what I'm doing or what I am potentially going to be doing, is it different from the norm? Because I believe that if you are different and you stand out amongst the rest, that you're going to get noticed and you're going to, people are going to be attracted to you for that reason. And it's bringing a culture as well, because I remember several years ago when I went to a much bigger facility than mine and a much nicer facility than mine at the time, I was walking on the hallway and I seen an employee, a cart had leaked over on the on the line on the floor and an employee who wasn't his cart just walked over, pushed it out of the way so it was back into the line area the zone. that it was supposed to be. Yeah. And then he kept walking. And I thought to myself, that is amazing. That wasn't his cart. He didn't need to do that. But at some point in time, he realized that the culture of that shop meant that if that cart was not in its right place, then it was... <laughs> his responsibility to move it into the right place. And you know how much that kind of culture costs? Nothing. Nothing. But you have to practice. And you have to train it. And the practice starts at the top and and works its way down. It's just like culture. Culture starts at the top. If the leaders aren't fully invested, how can you expect your team to be? Yeah, and really the only thing I can add to that, and Brian, that was I totally agree with what you're saying, is that we don't have necessarily a very structured way of doing it, but our seven leads, both day and night, are evaluated on their mentoring of other machinists and, and people in their in their group. Talking about culture and changing culture and things like that, our leads know that they're evaluated on the strength of their team. And so little things that we do, for example, we assign uh, notebooks to everyone on the floor. And they know that the worst thing that when I first started was that we have some people trying, learning, other people that sort of just going by the day to day, but asking the same questions or making the same mistakes. So in order to mitigate that, we are doing little things. And, and again, like the notebooks, we go around and look at the notebooks. What, what do they put in the these notebooks? This is interesting. Any jobs, that, you know, of course we cannot allow them to put drawings and things like that. Proprietary but, information. Yeah, right? Absolutely. But an example, uh, we'll have a tooling come out of the tool crib. Sometimes you've got maybe a dull tool. Do they notice that or not? And things like that, they have to note down so that they don't repeat the same mistake. Or if there's a specific issue with with a setup or how to do a setup better, what have you, they have to take those notes so that when they're given the opportunity to do a similar setup or be a part of a similar setup, they have to improve on what they did in the past. That's interesting. And it kind of reminds me of when we were in North Carolina for Akuma and they talked about their new Think Developers group that they embed... PowerPoint presentations into the controls of the machine right. so that they can say, once this job gets to this step, it pulls up this presentation and it like outlines for them, okay, this is how you set up this job. Or if it gets to a, another operation, 
it's almost kind of like your notebook. Okay, this is the point where you need to turn the the material over and you're doing the second op on the other side. And, you know, that way you don't make those same mistakes over and over and over again. But they're doing it in like an electronic, it's almost like a electronic notebook in that regard. But not everybody's that organized. But I, I think that that definitely helps. Jim, don't you have online chat for Car Machine and Tool? As a matter of fact, we do. And, you know, John just mentioned me the other day that somebody was chatting with him online. I'm like, great. That's all millennials want to do, right? Yeah. And that's why Zometry has it as well. I know. It's fantastic. You can just go right to the thing. If you have a question, just go right to the chat box, type in your question, and they can answer it for you right away. Yeah. There's a little box that says help with a bubble. Type your questions in there and away you go. Go to Zometry.com. X-O-M-E-T-R-Y.com. I have a question that I want each and every one of you to answer for me. How impactful is perception of our industry on these new impressionable young students, talent that are we want that come into our business? How, how impressionable is the parents' decision on that kid's career path? And what can we do to change that perception? As far as the perception is concerned, I think it really depends on I guess the target socioeconomics and things like that. I mean, from my perspective, prior to joining the family business, my perspective of manufacturing was not negative at all. My perceptions, maybe it was from, you know, having lived in Japan for a little over 10 years, it was clean, it was automated, it was fast, it was smart, it was a lot of engineers. It was, I think that's where manufacturing is going. That's where it is. There are manufacturing in the US and everywhere else, I guess, is still quite fragmented. So while I think over the next several years, just like the banking industry, just like every other industry, there's going to be a lot of consolidation and buyouts and things like that, even today. I mean, which companies are doing well? The bigger companies are doing really well. The smaller companies are not doing too well, actually, if you really, really take a look at it. As far as perception is concerned, I think it really depends. Doing stuff like you guys do in reaching out and trying to educate future manufacturing skilled labor is key, but also again, educating business leaders and owners that you need to motivate you. Branding is not a should, it's a must. It is. You know, automation is not a should, it's a must. You know, and especially here in California, labor is expensive and land is expensive and taxes are crazy. Our, our labor force is competing against automation. And, you know, one manufacturing leader that I, that I consult with quite often says that, tells his employees, you're competing against the machine the difference between you and the machines that you have a brain. You know, I, I think that the manufacturing image is not necessarily negative. So you think it's improved over the last decade? Yeah. Again, you know, fr from my background, I always sort of saw manufacturing as, you know, that Japanese Kaizen Kanban. Well, let, let's talk about that for, for a moment. What do you think the manufacturing leaders here in the United States can learn from? And I would assume in Japan, the companies are a lot bigger. Um, not necessarily. Not necessarily. It is no. fragmented just like it is here? It is. Okay. Uh, no, so, and, and if anything, most businesses are more fragmented. Okay. Japan okay. Well, I, I didn't know that. That's good to know. Well, how, what could the manufacturing leaders learn from those Japanese manufacturing leaders? But we are already, right? And, and, we are. And, and yeah. Conversely, I mean, I was really surprised at how many companies here, CNC machine shops or what have you, are talking about Kaizen, Kanban, mm -hmm. you know, all, all of these things that are just 
Japanese words. Yeah, right. You know, and it's just so funny that you see people on the floor that can barely put a sentence together sometimes talking about Kaizen and Kanpan and things like that. Serious. But no, you know, so to, to your question, I think we have implemented, but we need to do more. What I, more can we do? What, what is the more that you're looking for? So for example, I have a, a friend that is an owner of a, of a quite large machine shop in, in Japan. Their facilities are in Japan, just outside of Tokyo, and they take up two football fields. So they're reasonably big. That's a big shop. Um, they do not have any cleaning services. All of their employees clean the floors and everything every Saturday. So, so I mean, everyone's responsible for their own so area. That's to the extreme. And again, in Japan, in schools, when my son was, was four years old, he was responsible for cleaning his classroom. There are no cleaning services. So it's just, that is an extreme, but it just goes to show the importance of culture the importance of responsibility and accountability. Also, although they have a very large facility, they can fit more machines into those facilities than any, any place I've ever seen in the U.S. So the attention to detail, the respect. There's a very distinct the hierarchy there that they abide to from a respect standpoint, right? Correct, and which is good and bad. Because, you know, probably bad because there might be some passion or knowledge or something that you can get out of that younger person. Absolutely. And if, to answer your question, I would just say some of these manufacturing leaders maybe need to go to Japan or interact with them because I learn a ton from visiting shops and manufacturing facilities here in the U.S. Now with the experience that I have, I would probably learn so much more from seeing what goes on in places like Japan. Brian Pendarvis, what about perception? Are we getting better or are we getting worse? I, we are, we're getting a lot better. I okay, think, good. I think there was a, an issue. I want to say the 90s and the early 20s, there was a less the Early 20s? Early 2000s. Okay. <laughs> how do you say that? I, I don't know how you say it. Uh, so, and, and what, what I'm getting to is- The early zeros. <laughs> and what I'm getting to is, you know, shows like the BattleBot show and shows like that and, and how it's made. I love those shows. Yeah. The challenge we had was there was a period in the 90s and the early 2000s, there was no shop classes. Mm-hmm. And that they were all gone. So, but that was during my generation. They killed a lot of that stuff. That's yeah. why. That's probably why. That's a big your factor. generation isn't yeah. there, right? It, yeah. So yes. Yeah, so you have this generation of the early 30s to late 40s that just don't have this perception. I have people come in my shop. They're like, "Wow, people really make this stuff here." Yeah. I mean, that like, would be um, the perception amongst my generation right. that yeah, what, what, exactly. what do you mean we manufacture in the United had, States? Isn't a, that all in China now? I had a recent call. I got I. I drive by this guy's shop, this office, for 20 years. Guy calls him, needs some big tanks made. Sends me a drawing. I'm like, yeah, we're going to make here in Anaheim. He said, you guys do that in Anaheim? Well, yeah, we do. It was I was blown away. But he was probably 40, 45 years old. Let's fast forward. So I, what I do know, I've been part of a task force through the North Orange County Chamber. We are working to change that perception. There's a whole big old task force. And, and then I even know in the city of Orange, they're going down the education. There's consultants and stuff all the way down to the junior high, elementary school, because there's a study. There's several of them probably eight or 10 or 15 years ago that, you know, we as a society pushed everybody to college. The reality is there's only X amount of people are going to be good in college. And we pushed them there. There should have been somewhere back in sixth, seventh, eighth grade, do some vocational aptitude tests, mm-hmm. figure out and just and have a talk with Johnny and his mom and say, you know, I don't think college is the right route for you. 
But the perception was that was a negative. I think it's changing. But I mean, even Esperanza High School here at locally in North Orange County, they have a whole in a high school. They do 3D printing. They have machine shop and weld shop. I got young kids. I've been there. I toured it a couple months back. So it, it is changing. Fullerton College has a great program. Santa Ana College. But it's the perception. And I think it is shifting. Instagram. Oh, my gosh. I love Instagram. Welding and all this crazy stuff. I'm all over that stuff. I yeah. love watching those things. And I think there is a generation finally realizing, yeah, this is good, fun stuff. And you come to my place, you're, you're going to go home smell a little bit. And that's good. I don't mind. I don't. That's just. I don't mind either, is, brother. That's the way. It, it, that's that's it. how it's always been. That's right. It's definitely diminished a little bit over the last thirty years, but it's not nearly as bad as it was. That's for I, sure. But in, back to your question, yes, I do think the perception's changing, and I, I want to say I'm part of it a little bit. My friends, I got a lot of big circle of friends. They just love what we do at our company, and we kick butt at it too, man. Great, Brian Grigson, perception. Getting better, but I think we we had a serious lag there where we weren't hitting our market, our target demographic. Sure, manufacturers I think got behind the time, especially in social media, appealing to that next generation. I know I was of the generation where my mom was like, "You're going to college to be a doctor," and I'm because your dad was a steel worker, and I don't want you to be a steel worker. You're going to be better. And, but that, my dad taught me how to work on cars, and I could change a cam in and out of a 350 Chevy in 30 minutes or less. And awesome. I grew up working with my hands, so I was naturally attracted to welding in high school. But I think there was this big gap somewhere along the lines where where kids stopped working with hand tools and stopped going to auto shop and machine shop and welding, and those things weren't offered. So now the perception of, is it a dirty job? Is it a low-paying job? And I think we, as a community, need to change that perception first. We know it certainly is not low-paying, and we certainly know it is not dirty, right? Yeah. You could go to a trade school for nine months and get a great-paying career, or you could go to college, four-year degree, end up with all that student debt, and probably get out of school and maybe not even have as good of a job as your counterpart did that just went to school for nine months. I could not agree with you more. And touching on the social media and stuff like that, we put a $40 pumpkin in a million-dollar machine and carved it out and put it on Instagram and Facebook. And we got more likes and shares and retweets. <laughs> and then when we put a $100,000 piece of aerospace material in there, machine that out, what did the kids like? The pumpkin. The pumpkin. Yeah. Because it's more relatable. Yeah. And it's, and we got the, you know, oh, I didn't know you could do this here. How did you guys make this? How did you do this? That's where we got to know, you know, what demographic are we trying to hit? Right. Because when we put a cool looking aerospace part in there, you know what that is. You know what that is. I, I know what that is. Yeah. But for a 17-year-old kid, that doesn't mean anything. Yeah. I'm going I'm going to machine and pumpkins next week. <laughs> <laughs> There's a big market, I'm telling you. <laughs> so what does that future talent look like? How do we identify that person? What characteristics does that person have? So everybody that's listening to this show, when they when they see, hear, and feel and communicate with that person, that they know they're ripe for manufacturing and they're going to really have a great career by joining our companies and being trained up. Do they have great math skills? Do they have good mechanical aptitude? Are they... I, I think it really depends. Jim. Okay. I mean, it really does. I mean, because in our shop floor, for example, some of our best guys have some weaknesses that are severe, but are just brilliant you know, on the machine are just brilliant programmers and things like that. So you can't necessarily go by, you know, some of the smartest guys that we have are a little bit lazy. Okay. No, so, I, you know, you can't just pin one thing, right? What I look for are people that want to grow. You know, you were mentioning a moment ago, Brian, you know, wanting to do that extra 
in order to not only learn, but to help each other. So maybe not necessarily a specific skill per se, but it's just having something in them that they are willing to stay later to do that little extra work in order to learn. And how to identify that takes a little bit more than a half hour interview. One of the Brian's? I think it instill curiosity in people, mm-hmm. curiosity to to want to make something. And I, I think we're moving that in the direction, hiring people. It's just, it's interesting what he was saying about the smart guys and the not so smart. You've got different skills and it's just, it's tricky to put, put a finger on which person's going to be great in the manufacturing world. Mm-hmm. They got to have a little drive, but they could be great doctors. They could be good at anything. Very tricky. I, I've had great machinists. The funniest thing is my best machinists ever, they were a little wonky. They were just, dude, after like after a while, like, like you're crazy. <laughs> I mean, they, they were kind of crazy. I know you're going to cut this part out. Okay. Okay. No, I mean, some of the good. smartest people they, out there are a little, they were, little crazy. Oh, my, I had the sharpest guy. He could make my mill do stuff we didn't even know it could do. I would say I've what I find is people that like to make things from nothing into something. That's what I find. And when they when they get that feeling of I've taken this square block that was a big chunk of aluminum and now I've turned it into this really cool aerospace part. The the look in their eyes, the excitement they have, the pride in the workmanship. That's when you see like, oh, you're going to be a great machinist one day. So I, I've got one last question. And for me, this this kind of hits home because I've been talking about this a lot. But I think LA for, for the most part is similar to Chicago in that your city is plagued by some economic issues, some gang issues, some people that want to try to rise above where they're at. Do you think that there's an untapped market out there, like say in the inner cities, where you could train people who don't have the prospect of going to college, but could get a technical I mean, don't education. Have the privilege. Don't have the well, it, probably both. It's a privilege. They, it's a, it it's, it is a privilege. privilege. No, that's a good point. It's 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 they don't have the privilege, and then maybe maybe they also don't have the drive. Because one of the things that I tell people is that being a CNC machinist, being a welder, is the highest paying job that you can get without a college education. Do you think that there's an untapped market out there here in LA? in Chicago, where we need to be reaching out to some of those communities and saying, you need to get trained to be to get into the manufacturing industry. I absolutely agree. Yeah, absolutely. And what can we do to get there? Or what have you guys done? Maybe you've done something and we don't know about, or what can we do? Like, let's just float some ideas at each other, you know? Well, I think Jason of, wants to solve sorry. world problems, too, at the same time. I think a lot of these younger generation doesn't even know it's a viable option for them. They don't know that there's welding careers out there. Right. there. There's manufacturing careers out there because I don't think that your people are getting to them at that level in in middle school, in junior high or high school. Because if they don't know about it by, by the time they're turning 17, 18, then they're going to work at a warehouse. We've or, missed the boat. Or, or they're doing something else. But if you could get them interested in their senior year or freshman year or junior year, whenever, and then they know that that's a viable option for them when they graduate high school, and then you could put them into a training center like LA and TMA has or something along those lines, then, then you're ahead of the curve. But to answer your question, I don't think they know it's an option. I don't think we've done enough to, to put point. that message out We there. haven't done our due diligence. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So I live in, I'm born and raised in Fullerton, been here my whole life. It's a 20-minute drive from here. In the Fullerton area, about six, eight, ten years ago, a group of people, we have a demographics, we had a neighborhood that was really crime-ridden and stuff, and a bunch of teachers and other folks in the community got together, and they started studying kids. 
and they partnered with the local junior high and elementary school in this one little neighborhood. It's called Hoya Scholars. And today what Hoya does is they started interviewing kids and parents and they would go to the schools and in every school, the demographics show that there's always these bright kids, no matter what. So you talk about disadvantage. So these little pockets of, let's say, 500 or 1,000 kids, the numbers showed that X amount of kids are bright, just naturally talented. So what the Hoya Scholars does is they partnered with parents and kids and teachers and said, look, you give us your brightest and we're going to get them into college. So what they did is they interviewed these kids, part of the process, and their ambition was to work at the local Target. That was their ambition. That was their hood they lived in. Their whole ambition was to get out of school and to work by the skin target. of your teeth and work at the local Target. No disrespect for Target. No, not at but all. But you had these brilliant kids. So they had, these teachers would identify in their classrooms all the bright kids and said, you know, Johnny, we're going to meet you. You're going to introduce you to this team called Hoya Scholars. So the Hoya teams up with college kids and mentor them. And they assign you know, three or four kids to one young adult going through college. And it's all a volunteer organization. Now they're in two schools. And I drive by them all the They're right Maple School in Fullerton, the other one is in Placentia, but these little pockets of, they're everywhere. So you mentioned- So you think we could take that same model to manufacturing very much training? So. I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to do it, but there's br- the reality is there's bright people everywhere. It's statistical. Maybe they don't have the awareness or, they don't, don't, have or the awareness. don't have anybody that believes no, in no. them or, or, oh, or, right. or thinks that they can do but it. That's just something, it kind of lends what you're talking about. No, that makes yeah. sense. Great story, Brian. Or now we're going to say yeah, no, something. Well, to the points that were made, I mean, I, I totally agree. I think, first of all, all of us, it's human nature, right, to assimilate to the group that you're around or surrounded by. And if we're, we give these kids an opportunity to recognize that they can elevate their standards, then absolutely, I think we could tap into something really cool and help these kids. Another thing that just comes to mind is in reflecting back in, in my relationship with the machine shop in Japan. In Japan, generally, schools finish at the end of February, March, whether it's high school or college or what have you, and everyone starts job hunting. Everyone has a white shirt and a blue suit, female or male, everybody. Everybody has... So the, everyone looks alike. Uh, yes. Yeah. And then and everyone has the template resume with the picture on the upper right-hand side. You're not allowed to smile. And it's the same thing. But it, whether you're going to try to work for Goldman Sachs or you're going to work at Target or you're going to work at a, at a machine shop, the same resume, template, mm. the same picture and everything like that. The employees at this machine shop in particular all start in April. So they all start in April and they become employees of that company, living, breathing the culture from that period on. Just makes me think that I would be really interested. Now I'm very much curious as to how they do it in other countries. Well, I know Nick and I have talked about how, you know, in Germany, they very much have like an apprenticeship program there that is very deliberate and some of these other countries are doing things differently than we are here in the United States. And we could learn some things from that. You know, we really can. So gentlemen, we really appreciate you coming on the show. I think that we've talked about some great subject matter and you guys have definitely lended some some great knowledge to the metalworking nation. So thank you for that. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure to meet you and share your stories with the Metalworking Nation. And I'm confident that we've done our job to equip and inspire the Metalworking Nation today. And hopefully, I well, I know. What did you learn? What did I learn? I learned that we're doing better with perception. To me, that's always been 
the thing that I thought we've been failing at over the last couple decades. And maybe it was just my generation it, was the lost generation. Was, well, they, they the, the lost generation of manufacturing. You know, I think when the schools were having difficulty, <laughs> yeah. they they cut those. They cut the funding for that. Yeah. And it was just... It makes a difference. So, I mean, we wasn't need... wasn't relevant. The, one of the constant themes that we've talked about through this entire episode is that we need to get these kids young. Whether those kids come from inner city LA or Chicago or they come from a community that understands manufacturing, we need to get them young. We and, certainly and, and do. And we've talked we about that do. when we had Tony from Haas on the show at our, our round table at IMTS. That was one of the things that she said is that we got to get them young. Yeah. So... Great content in this particular show. How does the Metalworking Nation reach out to any one of these three well, people I think, or to us yeah, to I think continue what, the conversation? I think what I'd like to ask the Metalworking Nation is, you know, reach out to Jim and I. Give us your feedback. Let us know if there's something that you could add to the conversation. Email us at jason at makingchips.com or jim at makingchips.com or just info at makingchips.com. That'll come to all of us. And let us know what you think. If you've got a great idea and something that we didn't talk about that we can learn from and you want to get it out to the Metalworking Nation, please engage with us and let us know. Because at the end of the day, If you're not making chips, you're not making money. Bam. Metalworking Nation, listen up. Manufacturing is challenging. You need to think differently. The day-to-day whirlwind of urgencies, the pressure to grow, customer demands, workforce development, new machine tools and robots, the list goes on and on. It is possible to stay ahead of the game of manufacturing, but you can't do it alone. We're here to give you access to exclusive content from other leaders, as well as videos, blogs, show notes, and more resources designed to equip and inspire you on making chips. No, before you answer that question, Brian, Jim's going to use this word pulse like 10 times this episode. Yeah. It's his word of the day it is, we're giving yeah, him. It is a word of the yeah. day. Yeah, so exactly. It, well, if, he, well, if he gets annoying should with, I, with the sh- pulse, just tell him to use another word. Okay? Should I go on the thesaurus and, yeah. and get yeah, another use, word for Get it? a better word.